0: Ready? I was born ready.
1: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger and we're going to cover, we're not going to have as many things that we're going to cover today, but they're going to be consequential. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Washington, um, some of the law and surrounding the events that are happening in Wisconsin, uh, what we don't know and need to know, for example, about the Jacob Blake shooting and some of the law surrounding the vigilantism we've watched uh, unfold over the last couple of nights, including some legal complications around the shooting that uh, occurred last night, where uh, two people were killed, one person seriously injured. Really, an awful night of violence. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. We're also going to go take a walk down memory lane. A legal memory that might become pretty darn relevant really soon. A little case called Bush v. Gore. We're also going to talk about TikTok. And then we're going to end up with an interesting question that Sarah asked during, during the Dispatch pod that bears further conversation in this, the premier the premier pod in the Dispatch network. Um, Sarah, so you've been monitoring what's been going on in wisconsin um you've watched all of the relevant videos uh that are yeah. out there including the the really uh rough they're all really they are all really rough um video just tough to see the jacob blake shooting the 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 video of the shootings last night um what are your initial thoughts and, and we've talked the politics of this um, in the dispatch pod um, that will be coming out before this podcast comes out. But what what were some of your thoughts if you as you've seen this unfold?
0: Per usual, these videos are incredibly hard to watch, and it's upsetting to say per usual, <clears throat> but that's what's yeah. happening. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> David, you know this because you have children and you have a wonderful wife, but there are certain things that happen postpartum to your brain chemistry as a woman that are just different. And um, for me, it's been some anxiety related to my little baby um, that especially as I get tired during the day, my anxiety increases. And I know that it's not always rational, but I have to just say like, knowing that his kids are in the back of that car as you watch the video, for me was even um, more difficult than I think it would have been a year ago. Uh, and I was watching the video, when I was a little tired, and so like that, it's just very, very hard to know that there were children in the back of that car, and that that was their father that they were watching. Uh, set aside the law, you know, just as yeah. a, as a human. Uh, and then you have the video from Wisconsin last night, and it, what struck me about that is how preventable that was.
1: It's, oh my goodness!
0: It's that was a loss of life that, um, you know, everyone in that situation didn't need to be doing what they were doing in a lot of ways. And then the result is this catastrophically tragic result. And we can talk about the legal aspects of that, but if you're the family of everyone involved in that, you're just, uh, what a waste.
1: Yeah. I mean, and in some ways I felt like what happened ultimately last night in Kenosha, where again, two, two people were killed, one was seriously wounded, This was, in my view, and I hate to say this, inevitable. Um, There was, there were only so many circumstances where you were going to see clashes between violent protesters and armed militia before somebody was going to pull a trigger. And it looks like somebody certainly did, and it looks like probably two Somebody's did last night, killing two people. Um, You know, One of the things, and I I mentioned this earlier, that is tough about this, is that these really traumatic events are playing out in front of all of us. In one sense, they're playing out in front of us in a way that's quite transparent. In other words, you can see, you see the actual shootings. I mean, the actual shootings were captured on camera, but there's still a disturbing amount of fog around all of the incidents. And so everyone can impute all of their priors into both incidents and come away completely convinced of sort of the rightness of their pre-existing view. Um, Should we kind of talk about like what we don't know and know and don't know about both of them?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the Jacob Blake situation. Um, There are... I have been looking at these police shootings a lot over the last several years, and and breaking them down and uh, and and analyzing them from a legal and cultural standpoint a lot. And uh, there's a couple of things about this that uh, stand. There's a couple of things that stand out to me. Uh, one in which indicts the police, and one in which might exonerate the police. So the one it, that indicts the police is that when you see a lot of police shootings one of the things that you will often need to do is rewind the tape minutes before or you know m- you know minutes before the actual moment of the shooting a lot of people will focus dra- down on the actual moment of the shooting and try to judge everything by that and one of the questions that i have about this is when the police arrived under what circumstances were they arriving there's been a dispute on that was Jacob Blake trying to break up a fight that other people were involved in? Was Jacob Blake the subject of the complaint when the police arrived? He apparently had a warrant out for his arrest. At what point were the officers aware of that? What did they believe that he had been? uh, What was their state of mind on what his prior criminal record was to the extent to which influences the way in which they thought he was potentially violent? Did they believe that he had a weapon with him at any point. All of these are questions we don't have definitive answers to. Uh, but there is something that I'm very curious about and, and that is why could four officers not control him physically before he walked into the car. And I think that that is walk to the car. Cause I think that that is going to be a very important question to answer as to why things got so bad. The actual reach into the car, um, there have been recent cases, Sarah, in which juries have exonerated officers who have fired on a suspect who reached into a car and they could not see what the suspect was reaching for. The most recent example of that is the shooting Betty Shelby, a Tulsa police officer who shot an African-American man named uh, Terrence Crutcher. Uh, This was a couple years ago. Where he was in the street was not obeying her commands. She asked him not to reach into the car. He reached into the car. She fired a shot, and she was exonerated from that in that circumstance because of him. The fact that he reached for something in defiance of commands created uh, a reasonable a, a reasonable sense of risk to the officer. And uh, so there's actual recent, ca- there's recent cases where that reaching has been deemed to be sufficient justification. But again, this time an officer was right on top of him. What did the officer see when he started firing? Or did he, you know, the, so there's so much we don't know right now that makes it so difficult to draw a definitive conclusion about the event.
0: And a couple things on that one, there's two officers right there behind him at the door Mm -hmm. of the car. One's in front of the other. Uh, As you said, there's a lot we don't know, but the officer in front should have been able to see more than the officer behind him. So if you Mm -hmm. haven't seen this video, it's basically three people back to back to back. Right. Um, You know, did the front officer yell gun? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Um, and then the back officer shoots. We actually, I do not know who fired these shots. I both did. Um, There's also been some discussion of a taser was used earlier. We've talked about this before, but the reasonable use of force question is one that is a very, very narrow timeframe. It is in that moment, did the police officer fear for their life? Reasonably. Reasonably. It is not... um, Did they allow it to escalate too much before that? And so I think for a lot of non-lawyers who watch a video like that, you're like, this was preventable. Every step of the way, this could have happened, and this could have happened, and this could have happened. That is true. And it's an odd part of our law that, that when it comes to these things, that usually does not factor in to the legal question of whether the officer reasonably feared for their life in the moment that they fired the shot. And so,
1: this is one of those cases. I
0: think that it's gonna, that's gonna stun people, and you're gonna have a lot of people who think that that is a really unfair uh, legal analysis of it.
1: Yeah, as I've looked at a ton of these cases, I've generally grouped them into three general, three general categories. So, category one is a shooting by the police that is righteous and prudent from the get-go all the way through. So. You will see this and you can find these on the internet and that there is an active shooter. Somebody who's in the process of shooting and a police officer rolls up and, and takes care of the situation. That's from start to finish. The officer does the right thing or officers at a traffic stop routine, somebody pulls a gun, officer responds in the moment. So that's the kind of shooting that happens uh, a lot in this country where from start to finish there, you cannot fault the officer. Officer is doing the right thing then there's this other thing this other uh this other form of a police shooting or police killing like George Floyd there was no there was no killing where you can i mean no shooting where you can see in the moment the officer was wrong uh one of the parad- paradigmatic examples of this is the shooting of for example Walter Scott as he was running away um clearly wrong then there's this other category Sarah that happens more than we would want to see where the police make a series of mistakes that culminates in a crisis that the police resolve with deadly force.
0: Exactly. That's actually the majority of these cases that we deal with in the public. And by the way, this feels true in our politics as well. We're never talking about black and white cases, but then everyone treats them like they're black and white cases. The majority of these videos that I've had to watch in my job have been cases where I am disgusted by the actions that lead to the reasonable use of deadly force.
1: Yeah, there, I, I can think of a couple, I, I can think of examples just sort of off the top of my head. I mean, um, there's an awful case involving a guy named Daniel Shaver, and I would urge you not to look at this video because it's one of the most heartbreaking things you'll ever see. The police gave conflicting commands um, crawl towards us. Uh, don't use your hands. (laughs) I mean, it was the, I I can go through the whole thing, but the police were screaming at this guy who I believe was intoxicated, who had done nothing wrong, giving him conflicting commands. And the guy's trying to crawl to the police and his pants start to fall down and he reaches for his pants to pull his pants up and he shot dead. And the police officer was uh, exonerated in that circumstance. Conflicting commands. Police created the confusion. The confusion created an action that led the police officer to believe that he was in danger. The police officer fires a shot. But Philando legally, all steal. that
0: matters is in that moment, could he have reasonably feared for his life when, you know, could the person have been reaching for a weapon in his pants? And as long as a reasonable police officer could have believed that, it does not matter what happened before that. Again, for the most part, there's exceptions to everything. but. Uh, But that is going to be so frustrating to non-lawyers and, frankly, to lawyers.
1: Oh, another one is, you know, another paradigmatic example is the Philando Castile situation Mm -hmm. where Philando Castile tells the officer, uh, I have a gun. The officer does two things. He says, don't reach for it, meaning the gun. But he's also asking for the registration and, you know, all the documentation. So. How do you comply with both commands simultaneously? Well, you you don't reach for your gun, but you reach for the registration. And so, what ends up happening is he says, "Don't reach for it," and Castile says, "I'm not reaching for it." Bang. And so, there were these conflicting commands, created an immediate panic in the officer that the officer resolved by firing the shot. I can go down. Gosh, I can do this all day, Sarah. I mean, there was an awful case in California where officers had a guy. Asleep at the wheel, he was asleep in a drive-through. He had a gun in his lap. The officers essentially startle him awake. They startle him awake, and as they're screaming at him, he's in a car with the windows uh, pulled, rolled up, so they he can't really hear. As they're screaming at him, "Show me your hands! Show me your hands! Show me your hands!" The guy who has a gun wakes up confused, and they kill him within three seconds. But he had a gun right in his lap, and. You know, so these kinds of things are occurring quite a bit where there is officer confusion that is resolved by deadly violence, and the law, as it's written, doesn't deal with this well.
0: Yeah, so, and that, this just goes back to what we don't know about what we're seeing in this video, that everyone is treating on both sides as if it tells only their story. Yeah. The police were absolutely justified because he was reaching in his car. They couldn't see what he was reaching for. They had to fire. They were afraid for their lives. Why, you know, he was walking to his car for a good 10 seconds before that there were four officers there. If they wanted to stop him, why didn't they stop him? Uh, were they telling him to go to his car? Could the officer who was directly behind him, see where his hands were going and they weren't going anywhere. What, you know, what commands was he being given? Uh, We don't know. And I guess, you know, David, per usual on this podcast, we're the unpopular ones who have to say we're going to have to wait to find out what happened here, both from a narrative standpoint, political standpoint, et cetera, but also from a legal standpoint.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to wait. And this is one of those situations where actually there has been less Public information rather than more. And in some of these other circumstances, we've seen police reports pretty quickly. We've had comprehensive press conferences from public officials that have given us a sort of a TikTok. Um, we've not really had that as much here. So we have to wait and see um, what the full picture was before we can render the final judgment. Because as you said, the law here is actually really pretty pro police. Um, that and because the question is, is it going to be reasonable to believe, uh, in that moment of the shooting, that the that the officer was in danger, their life was in danger, or they're in danger of serious bodily harm, um, and we just don't know the answer to that yet.
0: So fast so forward we, three days.
1: Fast forward three days, and we have uh, rioting going on. We've had, for example, an older gentleman, I don't know if you saw this, beaten unconscious when he tried to defend his business with a fire extinguisher. Um, police are present, but they're obviously not stopping the rioting. And so, as has happened in some other places, when um, there has been a strong presence of of rioters, you've begun to see armed citizens. I don't know if you'd call them militia, but they're not the business owner. They're not so the homeowner like the McCloskeys who were in the Republican National Convention, but armed citizens who show up to, quote, protect property. And there you can see some of these folks being interviewed. And my goodness, Sarah, is that a bad idea <laughs> um, to grab your AR-15 and to head downtown uh, as an untrained person uh, with heavily armed, and to purport to defend other people's property. Um, It's a bad idea for obvious common sense reasons, but there's some legal reasons here as well. So one of them is that you may not be, as a matter of law, entitled to use force to defend the property that you're defending.
0: That'll be Um, a problem.
1: Yeah, so let me read to you the relevant Wisconsin statute. A person is privileged to defend a third person's property from real or apparent unlawful interference by by another under the same conditions and by the same means as those under by which the person is privileged to defend his or own property from real, real or apparent unlawful interference, provided, always read after provided, that the person reasonably believes the facts are such as would give the third person privilege to defend his or own own property that his or her intervention is necessary for the protection of the third person's property, and the third person whose property the person is protecting is a member of his or her immediate family or household, or a person whose property the person has a legal duty to protect, or is a merchant, and the actor is the merchant's employee or agent. And this is an odd additional sentence. An official or adult employee or agent of a library is privileged to defend the property of the library in the manner sub specified in this subsection, I guess there must. Okay, have well, some that anti- has a
0: story behind it, but we'll <laughs> just skip that. over that.
1: So, in other words, it has to be your family's property, your household's property, um, a property you have a legal duty to protect, or you like have to for be an instance, employee. If you're a
0: security guard, or uh, yeah, you've entered into some contractual relationship
1: there. Yep, or you have to be a merchant uh, and uh, an employer agent of the merchant. So, if I'm showing up with my AR to the local uh, 7-Eleven to defend it, I don't have the right to do that.
0: Yeah, there could be some questions. Uh, For instance, if you show up to a business, the business owner is there also trying to defend his property. Can he create an agent relationship in the moment with you? Maybe. Uh, Maybe. But if the business owner isn't there and you just are like... Uh, you know, pew pew. I'm here to defend random property that I don't know about. Uh, that is certainly not covered by what you're talking about, and it looked like that was what was going on in Kenosha last night. Not referring even specifically to the video that we're going to talk about, but just in general, that some people thought that they were deputized to just go protect property, generally speaking, in downtown Kenosha.
1: And and also here's another relevant Wisconsin statute. It is not reasonable to intentionally use force intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm for the sole purpose of defense of one's property. So, um, it, so that Which is would, true that, in every th-
0: state I'm aware of. You cannot use deadly force. It basically, it's like rock, paper, scissors, and life always trumps property.
1: Right, right. Now, there are some states where you don't have, you have the stand, the stand your ground, you have stand your ground status at the instant you set foot on, someone sets foot on your property. You have zero duty to retreat. Um, that's, you know, Missouri, for example, where we had the McCloskey situation. But so here you have, you do not, it is not reasonable to use deadly force to defend property. And if you're a third party and you're not the employer agent of the merchant, you don't have the right to defend their property. And then let's throw the other complicator here on there, which is that it's actually also a crime to point your weapon at somebody. Okay? so David,
0: we have all of those things that apply before that video starts,
1: potentially. So you're
0: walking around downtown Kenosha with a gun, quote-unquote defending property, you can be charged with, a number of crimes based on what you're reading, David.
1: You're criming. You're so if criming. you if you're sitting there outside of a Seven Eleven and you point an AR at somebody to defend the Seven Eleven that is not yours and and you've not been deputized to defend it, you have committed a crime. Flat out, you've committed a crime. Um, now, at the same time, uh, so I, I also have a right to defend myself.
0: Right. <laughs> And that's where we get into the video that we watched and the controversy around it.
1: Yes. So in the video we watched, a young man is running. He's got a, a rifle. And he's running with his rifle through protesters. He apparently trips and falls, and people yell, get him. At which point, a, uh, two or three guys kind of cluster around him. The guy who falls opens fire. Everyone scatters. One person falls, another person staggers away injured, and then you hear other gunshots. So now here's where this gets so tangled. So if he's pointed his weapon at people unlawfully, the people he points at suddenly have a right of self-defense themselves. Okay? This is how this gets so tangled. Um, Remember the um, Ahmad Arbery shooting? Yep. a lot of people said, well, Arbery was attacking the person who, who had blocked his way. Well, as soon as, you know, when they blocked his way, when those gentlemen blocked his way, and I use that term loosely, uh, when those guys blocked his way and pointed a weapon at him, Arbery had a right to defend himself. So this gets really, really complicated. And it's like reasons one through 1,000 why you don't strap on a weapon And go head towards the riot. You just don't do that. Um, But, you know, it's funny. I'm seeing a little bit on sort of this right-wing Twitter world, Sarah. I'm seeing people, you know, how the right piles on the left that when the left won't condemn Antifa. Why aren't you condemning Antifa? I'm not seeing much condemnation of the vigilantes.
0: And two people are dead who did not need to be. Exactly. Regardless of where the law ends up falling.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Well, we'll learn more. We can update this as we learn more if it, uh, you know, becomes relevant.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I, I um, there's this, I believe it's in, I, re, I saw this in Slate, but somebody asked a question. What would you think if you saw these things unfolding in other countries? Like if you're watching video of them unfolding, say in, you know, Spain, you would worry what's happening in Spain. What is going on in Spain? What's happening? Is the country getting less stable? And, um, I, I am this, this kind of thing we have to be, we have to find a way if we cannot find a way to disentangle this from partisan politics, and restore order while protecting constitutional rights, I'm very, I'm very alarmed by what's happening.
0: Shall we take a walk back into history?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so should should we go from like-
0: Simpler street- times?
1: <laughs> yeah, doesn't Bush v. Gore sort of feel like, um, I don't know, the Oxford debating club compared to what we're going through now?
0: Ugh. Yeah, who knew that we'd long for the days of Bush v. Gore. That felt pretty catastrophic at the time.
1: Yeah, it didn't, it, though. So you, this was your, your idea to bring up Bush v. Gore. And it, when, you, when it was your idea, you seemed to have a very specific kind of legal thought in your mind as you brought it up. So I'm very curious as to why, aside from the obvious of this was the last time the Supreme Court got directly <laughs> involved in a presidential election, what, were, what was in that Sarah cranium specifically about Bush v. Gore?
0: So we all just sort of like throw Bush v. Gore around uh, talking about like, oh, election recounts Bush v. Gore. But if you remember the actual issue in Bush v. Gore, the election had gotten thrown uh, to Florida. That was clearly where it was going to matter. Catherine Harris, who was the Florida secretary of state and a Republican, declared Bush the winner of the 25 electoral votes. And then there was a recount and the Supreme Court was asked to decide whether the recount uh, was constitutional, basically. The Supreme Court said that it wasn't. The recount was uh, forced to stop and it fell back on the last certification of the count, which was Republican Florida Secretary Catherine Harris saying that Bush had won. The end, everyone's super upset. Why does this matter? Because the reason that the Supreme Court stopped the recount could be quite relevant to what we're looking at in November. Now, remember, I told this like horrible scenario where on November 3rd, there's in-person voting counts that we have. But then we have 40 million absentee ballots scattered around the country, millions of which will be in battleground states. And you could have recounts in. Let's be conservative here, David. Eight, eight battleground states. Right. And uh, so we need to count all these absentee ballots. There are objective measures and there are subjective measures, which I talked about. But let's take a subjective one, which is signature matches. The signature would need to match the signature card. Here's the problem. The Supreme Court, it was actually 7-2 that Florida's recount mechanisms violated the equal protection clause. Everyone thinks that right. Bush v. Gore is five, four. It was five, four on the remedy. Let's call it for that, which was, could there, could we come up with other ways to do the recount in time before the December 12th or, uh, sorry, December 18th meeting of the electoral college and four members of the court thought that they could do it or should do it. And five members of the court said, Nope, it's done. And we're out of time, but seven justices agreed that it was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Here's the problem for November, David. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a few, right? But <laughs> let me let me read you a little section here. The right to vote is protected in more than the initial allocation of the franchise. Equal protection applies as well to the manner of its exercise. Having once granted the right to vote on equal terms, the state may not, by later arbitrary and disparate treatment, value one person's vote over that of another. Remember, seven justices agreed with that. (sighs) But we have a problem, David, because that was a recount, meaning we already had an initial count of the ballots. What happens when we don't have an initial count so the court can't just say, and we're done, which is what the court did in Bush v. Gore, there was a count to then rely on. They will not have that as an out. There will have to be counts across the country of absentee ballots And those counts will have to be on equal terms because of Bush v. Gore. How do you do that across not just eight states, but within those states where, you know, one person is saying most of the signatures, you know, I think that generally speaking, signatures match. And I'm going to, for the most part, defer and have a presumption that the signatures match. And someone else has a presumption that the signatures don't match. You have to prove that the signatures match. And what if that's a stated policy? What if it's just in their heart and you have statistics showing that in one county, uh, 95% of the signatures were held to match, and in the county right over from that, only 45% of the signatures were held to match. Uh, What is the Supreme Court going to say about policies that differ from state to state Policies that differ within state, which would look exactly like Bush v. Gore, or statistical anomalies similar to our disparate impact versus disparate treatment uh, jurisprudence. Uh, hot mess, David. Hot. Oh my gosh. Hot, steaming mess.
1: So you you mentioned Bush v. Gore, and in the back of my mind, I was like, oh yeah, I remember Bush v. Gore. I remember it was an equal protection issue. I remember it was about the method in which the ballots were going to be counted. And so the, but then I went back and I reread it and it just brought back a flood, (laughs) a flood of
0: memories.
1: (laughs) So, um, as we record this, I'm wearing uh, my Cornell law t-shirt, ironically enough, because I was teaching at Cornell law school at the time living in Ithaca, New York. Um, the legal issues were so fascinating that I divided the class in half and one half of the class was arguing the Bush side, and one half of the class was arguing the Gore side, and they were writing legal memos. It was really fantastic as a teaching tool. Um, so I was so well versed in this stuff at the time, and then also at the time, while, right when this is um, right when this is absolute, ac- uh, reaching its absolute apex, uh, Nancy goes into labor. Um, <laughs> And it was kind of a difficult labor, and the doctor was in the room with us. This is not normal. Um, The doctor was in the room with us the entire labor. Why? that's not normal. Why? Because he was asking me question after question about Bush v. Gore.
0: If I were Nancy, I'd be so angry at that moment. On the one hand, it's nice to have the doctor in the room, but also, you've got to be kidding me.
1: Oh, we were absolutely talking it through. I mean, nurses were coming in. Other doctors were coming in. We were talking through Bush v. Gore. I was, you know, doing my law splainer, law professor thing. And at one point, Nancy says, uh, hello, mother in labor here. Like, yes. literally, she said that. Yeah. So she that's right. that's how I remember this so well. But yeah, so the signatures are a glaring thing and it's probably going to be tough for a judge to come in afterwards in and, and well not that they wouldn't but the equal protection analysis to the inherently subjective signature matching process is a mess but a lot of these mail in votes they have a lot of other aspects to them other than just the signature that's right outer seals inner seals all kinds of other elements and so if you begin to have a situation where um, let's say you're an electoral official uh let's just let's go back to the let's go back to the Florida greatest hit shall we Broward County Ugh. you're a Broward county election official and and look I'm just throwing this county out there. I don't know the actual Florida sealing requirements et cetera et etc Let, let's just say Broward county is allowing uh ballots with an intact outer seal but a broken inner seal. And Palm Beach County is saying, nope, the ballot has to have intact outer seal, intact inner seal. And the reason why Broward went with the allowing the broken inner seal, is because it was so common that it was excessively disenfranchising voters. And the subjective view was the outer seal's enough. Well, Bush v. Gore is going to come in like Thor's hammer in that circumstance. And um, unlike
0: in Bush v. Gore, they will have to also have a remedy.
1: Right. And exactly. they'll have
0: to say, from now on, all inner seals must be sealed or not. And that's, you know, that's what Bush v. Gore didn't do, which I think would have made it. I mean, you thought Bush v. Gore was bad. This would have made it worse if then the Supreme Court had also needed to fashion a remedy or throw it back to the Florida Supreme Court to fashion a remedy somehow in the five days remaining. I mean, just mess after mess, and these counts will be going on in the meantime.
1: Yeah, exactly. Going on against a backdrop of American polarization that is orders of magnitude worse than it was in 2000.
0: So I'm orders hoping I'm wrong. I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong on several things. I'm hoping I'm wrong that uh, this will come down to absentee ballots. I'm hoping that everyone who can vote in person will vote in person. I'm hoping I'm wrong that uh, by the time the election comes around, we will still have a partisan breakdown in absentee ballots. It'd be great if the absentee ballots, for the most part, were evenly split. Um, I mean, not great because we'd still have a mess, but like <laughs> a different mess. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong that people will lack the patience and calm and fortitude to let a legal process play out and that when that process has to make a decision that's going to make half the country angry one way or the other, that the half the country that is on the losing side will accept that result. Which, we can talk about Bush v. Gore and that the Democrats didn't accept the result. I've heard that so much. No, they did, actually, accept the result. They did. They may be pissed off about it. They may have commented on it. They may have, you know snidely said that Bush didn't win the popular vote for eight years. But as a country, the result was accepted.
1: The bottom line is Al Gore gave a remarkably gracious speech. Remarkably gracious after the decision was announced. I I don't know if you remember that, but I remember watching that and going, you know, Al Gore, I was really against you. But my goodness, this is a gracious concession there was absolutely no threat to the peaceful transition of power. I mean, yeah, in the sense that people say, hey, actually, I think really, honestly, more people went to the polls on November, in November 2000 intending to vote for Al Gore than intending to vote for George W. Bush. That might be right. Yep. That might be right, y'all. This was so close. And one of the interesting aspects of the uh, Supreme Court opinion is how upfront they acknowledge that about 2% of all ballots 2% of all ballots have some sort of issue with the presidential slot. And that's so much more than the margin of victory here that I think only God in heaven knows who a majority of Floridians intended, or plurality of Floridians intended to vote for.
0: But God could not decide this one, and so our legal process had to pick.
1: <laughs> now, theologically, okay, Sarah... <laughs> Uh God did have a winner. <laughs> I the the I'm going to dispute that he could not. Oh, could not. sorry. <laughs> but sorry. no, the the but the bottom line is to this day, I mean there there were some really interesting newspaper recounts that were done after that sort of reached a conclusion that you could have to a greater or lesser degree confidence that Bush won, actually. Um but still, there's a lot of metaphysical uncertainty about this, and there was no threat to the peaceful transfer of power. And and I'm not going to be And also, I guess what I
0: would say is it, our system actually is not supposed to determine who people intended to vote for that day. That's not how right. we determine a winner of the presidency. We determine a winner of the presidency based on our constitution. Mm-hmm. And our constitution, in, in this case, valued... Um, a date certain by which you would know over the exactitude of people's intended votes so how you know that's an interesting debate but it's not relevant to who should have become president if that makes sense
1: right right well the, there were time limits that had to be observed constitutionally that because that, we just and- we decided
0: as a as a society we valued that over perfection
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And,
0: and that's going to happen again this time. So anyway, that's, that's the Bush v. Gore thing. Happy memories. Uh, well, can recommend I, can people I eject, go read the opinion. Yeah,
1: Can I eject a tiny bit of optimism? Okay. Um, all of the stuff that we have laid out, like this sort of dystopian voting stuff that we've laid out and sort of tried to raise the alarm about in the last couple of podcasts, I classify it as foreseeable but not probable. That's so. I'm going to be wildly optimistic, and I'm going to say state officials have learned lessons from the terrible failures this earlier this spring in the primaries. Um, I'm also going to believe that the margin of, of victory is going to be outside the margin of error. I think both awesome. of those things are, I'm hoping, probable. <laughs> but it's foreseeable that it, they won't be.
0: We'll see. All right, let's do some quick TikTok.
1: Yes. Yes. So, um TikTok has filed suit um and you know, just to just to make just to in case anyone had any doubt of previous uh a previous podcast I declared that I had a TikTok channel. Um in which I uh, was doing viral dance moves to Taylor Swift songs. That was fake news. That was fake news. It's TikTok to 80s hairband metal. Oh, God. And no, I, my kids, my kids have loved TikTok. I don't have it on my phone. But TikTok has filed suit to live uh, to try to stay in business. And it's an interesting lawsuit. it's interesting, and it, it, it basically is going to add, so it, essentially what has happened is that the president has invoked his emergency powers under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act um, to try to force the sale of TikTok or end TikTok's operations in the United States by mid-September. Um, it seems pretty clear that two things are going on at once. One, this is not the typical invocation of emergency powers. In other words, this is uh, seems to be outside the intended scope of the statute. And the justification put forward for the invocation of the statute is pretty... Um, Uncertain and uncertain and speculative. So here, here's for what comes from actually comes from the, um, the executive order. TikTok's data collection threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party access to America's personal propriety or inform- information, potentially allowing China to track the locations of federal employees and contractors. Um, TikTok also reportedly censors content that the Chinese Communist Party deems politically sensitive. TikTok may also be used for disinformation campaigns that benefit the Chinese Communist Party. So it <clears throat> what we do not have in the executive order is an indictment based on facts of TikTok's wrongdoing, but rather a a punitive action based on potential future misconduct. Um and essentially. I think the the legal issue is just going to basically boil down to, Sarah, how much discretion is a federal court going to give a president in the invocation of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act? If the the court's going to impose any real meaningful review, it would seem to me that the Trump administration will have to come forward with more than may potentially reportedly. But I'm very skeptical that the court will inter- will get involved here.
0: Well, let me ask a real politique question, David. Where was this lawsuit filed?
1: This lawsuit was filed. Oh, um, let's see. Uh, Central District of California.
0: Oh, how interesting.
1: Western, Western <laughs> Division.
0: <laughs> so you're saying that will go to the Ninth Circuit, are you?
1: I'm saying it will go to the Ninth Circuit, yes. Hmm. Yes, indeed.
0: Hmm. Well, I think I mean, that it, may tell you something.
1: Uh, well, TikTok is represented by Covington Burling, and they are not Covington Burling, they are not dumb. Nope. They're not filing this in the Western District of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Middle District of Tennessee. New sir. Central District of California. Western Division.
0: So what'll be interesting um, is if they put in an injunction, because I believe that the president gave a September twelfth deadline uh for TikTok to be divested. So if the Ninth Circuit, you know, if the district court puts in an injunction, the Ninth Circuit upholds that injunction, will the Supreme Court step in? And if Trump loses, you could end up uh, the election, I mean, if Trump loses the election, you could end up where just another situation where, you know, and this isn't good. It does it isn't good no matter who the president is. Right. An administration does not get to have a policy in place uh, you know, until they're out of office. Which is messy.
1: You know what I'm smelling right now? Mm. I'm sniffing in the air. I'm sniffing in the air more Roberts, Justice Roberts' impatience with uh, administrative sloppiness. That's what I smell. Interesting. Because, okay, I believe that you could, in fact, fashion an executive order that could lay out chapter and verse the the very real tech vulnerabilities that exist through TikTok. There are reasons why, for example, if you're a DOD employee, you're not supposed to have TikTok on your phone. Um, and you could dot your I's and you could cross your T's and you could put something together and maybe even have a classified appendix that is for the court size only um, that dot your I's and crosses your T's and says, here here are this precise technical reasons why this creates unacceptable vulnerabilities. Hands off court. And even the and even if the Central District of California favor was you know in, in, issued an injunction and in the Ninth Circuit upheld the injunction, Supreme Court's going to step in, and say, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is you know, this is squarely within the president's powers. But we have seen recently in a couple of circumstances, Census and DACA something that seems to be pretty squarely within the president's powers where the chief justice has not been impressed with the president's work product. (laughs) My teachers used to say that to me
0: all the time. Sloppy work product, Sarah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I do wonder about that. I do. Um, But that's TikTok.
0: Okay, adulthood, David. So here is my thing. Uh, There's As I stare at my... Two and a half month old son, it looks nice to be a baby. I'm not going to (laughs) lie, right? He (laughs) naps whenever he wants. There's food whenever he thinks about even eating. I mean, every comfort is thought of and provided. But my son is not happy with that. He's not satisfied with being a baby. He, in fact, as best I can tell, finds the whole thing to be one indignity after another. (laughs) He does not like to cuddle with me, he does not like me kissing his face. Uh, We got him a little floaty that, um, goes around his little neck in the bathtub and it's supposed to be like super fun, you know, to like watch your kid. And, uh, lots of parents are like, Oh, my son cried at first, but eventually liked it. No, my son immediately kicked away from me to the other side of the bathtub, having the best time ever. And like, was like, when do I get to sign a lease on my own apartment? (laughs) He is so ready to be a little adult. So I was thinking, you know what? He has a point because there are so many moments in adulthood when I'm like, damn, it feels good to be a gangster, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) nobody can tell me what to do now. Yeah. Uh, So I talked on the dispatch podcast that one of those things for me is setting the air conditioner to whatever I want. Yeah. Adulthood. Uh, So setting aside the temperature of your house, what is that moment? Where you're like, I'm an adult. I'm going to do this and nobody can stop me.
1: Well, it was a slowly evolving process of of growing into adulthood and e- experiencing the joys of it. It began simply enough with a defiant purchase of Lucky Charms cereal, <laughs> which I was never allowed. You know, we, we wouldn't buy Lucky Charms. We did not have sugar cereal, cereals in the house. I Same,
0: mean, Cheerios only.
1: Yeah, Cheerios, which Cheerios are good.
0: Oh, God, and there were grape nuts, but that's, like, for a kid, a fate worse than death.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, now You might as well, like, be issued dried broccoli for <laughs> breakfast cereal. So Cheerios, it was Cheerios, and I had an uncle that we'd visit, and he had Lucky Charms, and it was just, like, walking into the Disney world with the Lucky So the defiant purchase of the Lucky Charms, that that was, like, sort of, like, one of the markers. And then the other one, honestly, the open road. mm I, I can get in a car, grab some friends, and I could just go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have to say, "Look at that, yeah, <laughs> yeah." I'm I don't have to be back by midnight. You know, I had I had my curfew, and so if I want to get in a beat up Chevy Nova and drive to Colorado and be an amateur backpacker, um, <laughs> by golly, yes, I'm doing it.
0: And this is not hypothetical, friends, so we know this will be very upsetting to a small, small minority of you, but we will not have a Monday advisory opinions because David has decided (laughs) to risk life and limb to recreate a college moment with his buddies. And so we will be recording on Tuesday next week.
1: (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. But yeah, so it was the lucky charms followed by the open road. And I can't remember I think oh oh then the la- the other one was turning the key on my first real adult apartment. Yeah. That was pretty sweet. Not my law school crap apartment that had rats running in the walls and mice <laughs> living in the couch.
0: Oh God, in the couch. Ah!
1: In the couch. And I would set m- m- uh, mouse traps, and I'd be laying there watching TV late at night and I would hear the mouse trap go snap while I'm watching television. Um, not that one. No, that when I had a law firm job and I could afford a nice apartment and having that, that that was. So what about for you, Sarah? Uh, I will
0: also do do three quick ones. I already said the AC, but like, I don't think you understand how traumatic my childhood was. And it wasn't the AC. It was the heat. In the winter, mm. my mother would refuse to turn on the heat in the house. I will grant you that we lived in Houston, but Houston gets cold ish and the house would get really cold. And she would just tell me to put on more clothes. And when we moved into this house and I was super cold and like putting all these clothes on, my husband was like, Darling, turn up the heat <laughs> in like this dramatic <laughs> fashion of like, We've made it. We've arrived. That's you can be a temperature that you're comfortable at. And I was just like, whoa. Uh, So that was a big one, is not having to just put on all the clothes that I own. Because it turns out, David, it's not just like me complaining. I run very, very cold. Like I, my body temperature will get so cold that I can't warm myself back up without um, submersing myself in hot water. Uh, So it's also a time suck and it's very unpleasant and I'm like, you know, shaking. Okay, so that's one. Two. Oh, man, the car thing is so real. Uh, When I got my license, I went first thing in the morning with my mother, dropped her off back at home, got into the car, was supposed to head back to school, but I did not. I instead headed to the grocery store that was behind my high school and went in for jelly bellies and I sat in my car and I just ate some jelly bellies for a few minutes, David. I just did it. (laughs) Yeah. My time, my space.
1: sweets and mm-hmm. the road that's not that's that different right.
0: okay but the last thing and this is i think the biggest one my mother who i previously mentioned would not turn on the heat it's just notoriously cheap she was the youngest of 10 children um you know immigrant parents grew up on a dairy farm the woman does not spend money on anything ever 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 and i, I was inculcated in that culture and i do i really do follow it in a lot of ways i i do not have um many spendthrift tendencies so <laughs> when i do spend frivolous money on something, it is a thrill. <laughs> and I don't mean big purchases. <laughs> I mean little ones. So this week, I purchased two, David, two frivolous things. One I've already described to you, which is the <laughs> the, the inner tube to play with the baby in the bathtub, awesome. which is called an otteroo. And it was a stupid, like, it was $25. That's a, That's a stupid amount of money for what this thing is. but you know what it has brought me so much joy and the second one (laughs) cane toads are a real problem they're a pest david they were introduced to kill off another pest but it turns out that nothing kills cane toads so all the cane toads wiped out that pest they also have wiped out then like everything in their path you know they're omnivorous little things they eat like baby bunnies, basically, and everything else, baby birds and all of the plants and everything else. Anyway, cane toads are a problem. The way you get rid of them is you kill cane toads. Um, Oh, and there's no predators for cane toads because, again, they were an Mm. introduced species. So these people take the murdered cane toads, (laughs) leather them, and turn them into coin purses with, with their little cane toad facial expressions on them on Etsy. And uh, I hope I'm not ruining the surprise for my friend because she's going to get it tomorrow. So hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast between tonight and tomorrow, Casey. But she is getting a cane-toed congratulations on 61 hours of labor present from me tomorrow.
1: <laughs> wow. Wow to 61 hours of labor. <laughs> and wow to the idea that getting a change pur- what, a change purse? Yes, yes. With terrified, dying cane toad face on it,
0: <laughs> it's the whole toad, David. The feet, the little butt, the whole thing has been perfectly preserved as leather.
1: Um, Sarah, <laughs> feel free not to buy me presents.
0: <laughs> you know, like, you get our, a gift that says just, I care.
1: <laughs> yeah, our our friendship is too strong for presents. Really, oh, there's, oh, there's okay. just no need. There's just okay. no need.
0: Good to know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, but you know, I'm I'm not going to hold that against you because you still have the greatest business idea I've ever heard.
0: Queso burro.
1: Yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh my goodness! Well, on that note, on that abysmal cane toady note, <laughs> <laughs> Caleb, our
0: producer's <laughs> face. <laughs> <laughs> You can oh. find them on Etsy, folks. Your cane toad changed purse with their surly faces. And then each surly face is unique, of course.
1: So for the first time, I'm going to ask you not to review this podcast <laughs> after hearing about cane toads. So ignore that we're an Apple Podcasts. Ignore <laughs> that rating. Uh, don't resist that urge to press one star. But do check out thedispatch.com and Please do subscribe to this uh podcast because normally we have better gift ideas than that.
0: If you follow me on Twitter, I'll tweet a picture of the cane toad tomorrow right when I give it to her. Oh my goodness
1: <laughs> and that Twitter handle is is
0: w- like a political party yeah
1: mm-hmm. yeah we, we we gotta break down that Twitter handle one day
0: yeah, maybe we will
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd look forward to that. This has been Advisory Opinions with David French and Sarah Isker. And we will be back next week after I have summited, hopefully, Mount Elbert in Colorado. And we will talk to you then.